This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Before the Broadway musical Funny Girl turned my guest Barbara Streisand into a star, she was getting a lot of attention in 1962 for her nightclub act and for her show-stopping comedic number in the then-new Broadway musical I Can Get It For You Wholesale. That led to her being booked on The Gary Moore Show, which at the time was a popular TV variety show. Here's how she was introduced by Gary Moore in 1962. You know, one of the biggest thrills for a guy who's been around this business as long as I have is the advent of a bright new young star. Several weeks ago, a very talented 19-year-old newcomer named Barbara Streisand did a comedy song in the Broadway musical, I Can Get It For You Wholesale, and she stopped the show cold. Also, in addition to that, she appears nightly at the Bonsoir and kills the people there. But I was delighted to learn during rehearsals this week that she is equally effective in straight numbers as she is when she's being zany. Here, then, is Miss Barbara Streisand. After that introduction, Streisand performed what became one of her signature songs. Barbara Streisand has a new memoir called My Name is Barbara. Her career got off to a rocketing start. In 1964, she won two Grammys for her first album, the Barbara Streisand album. She was nominated for Tonys for her two Broadway shows. Her first Oscar was for the film adaptation of Funny Girl. She became one of the best-selling recording artists of all time. In 1983, when Yentl was released, she became the first woman to write, produce, direct, and star in a major studio film. A new 40th anniversary release of the Yentl soundtrack includes two discs. The second is largely devoted to demo recordings featuring Streisand. She recorded her end of our interview from her home. Barbara Streisand, welcome back to Fresh Air. Congratulations on the book. It is an honor to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. Your memoir starts with how early articles about you focused on your nose. Why, why did you want to start with your nose? It's a 900-page book. Why start with your nose? Well, what would you have started with? I don't know. I didn't write the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I had to get their attention, you know, and it was also true. I mean, the articles about me that I remember were, you know, I had a researcher that researched me because I never kept a scrapbook even. And right away, I didn't like being interviewed uh, and being asked certain questions. But even if the interview went well, I noticed that they printed something that was not nice. So what was that about? I never quite understood it. The negativity, you know, like Mm -hmm. the... Picking on my nose uh, wasn't that big ever. I wasn't Jimmy Durante, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You you initially, well, you decided you weren't going to get it fixed, in part because you were worried it would affect your voice, and and for good reason, probably. Yeah, my first instinct was that I liked my bump, and people would say, oh, you, you know, you should have your bump removed or something. Why would I remove my bump? And those, I just had a problem with the tip of my nose, but I wasn't um, faithful that any doctor would do something so tiny, you know? I probably wouldn't like it. The third thing I thought about was, way later, was, oh, it might affect my voice, my nasal quality, <laughs> you know, seeming uh, was liked, so why would I change it? Mm-hmm. And I don't like pain. I mean, I've seen people with the bandages on their nose, and uh, sometimes they're not happy, and sometimes they take too much off, and you can't put it back. I don't know. I just didn't want to take a chance. And it was expensive, remember. 
when I was growing up expensive. We didn't have the money to do anything like that. But, mm. you know, it just, no, I decided I'll try to just make it on my own and make it about who I was, really. Early on, when you were starting out, you performed at the Bonsoir, which you describe as a sophisticated nightclub in Greenwich Village. And there's a, you did a live recording from the club that was never released in 1962 when it was recorded, but it was released last year in a remastered version. So to talk about your early career, very early career, I want to play a track from that. And I thought we'd hear Keeping Out of Mischief now because it's quite delightful. So here it is, Barbara Streisand, live in 1962. Keeping out of mischief now I really am in love and how All the world can plainly see You're the only one for me I have told them in advance They can break up our romance Living up to all my vows Cause I'm keeping out of mischief now Out of mischief now I'm in love that was Barbara Streisand, recorded in 1962 at the club The Bonsoir. Um, you wanted to be a dramatic actor of, at first. Why, why did you think of singing as secondary to drama? Because I wanted to be on the stage and play, you know, Juliet and uh, A Doll's House, whatever, you know, Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare. And to sing to me in a nightclub was not what I imagined my career to be. Because I knew I had a pretty good voice and I was living with a man who had a great record collection and he said, there's a club across the street. It was a little club uh, called The Lion. And that manager of that club took me over to the Bonsoir to audition and that's how I got a job. It was a wonderful job, and I met Phyllis Diller. You know, we shared a tiny little dressing room together. She was great. She was a great friend to me. Bought me a dress because I came out in antique clothes that I thought were beautiful. And cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and cheap, beautiful sequins and gorgeous buckles on the shoes and mm -hmm. you know from the 1920s and the top I wore the opening night it was from 1890 what I mean the, the craftsmanship the boning and you got these at thrift stores of course yeah wow how did you realize you should try Broadway musicals so you wanted to be a dramatic actor then you started singing at a club and then of course you started auditioning I went to acting classes where I could play the roles I wanted to play. My first acting class when I was 14, taking the train from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and I tried out for the actor studio when I was 15. So when I didn't get jobs, I decided I had to make a living somehow. I went to that talent contest and won. And that's how I became a singer. Mm-hmm. So you kept auditioning, and you got a part in I Can Get It For You Wholesale, uh, which was, you know, a musical comedy on Broadway. I wa had a wonderful uh, serendipitous, is that such a thing, a, a word, serendipitous, yeah. Uh, I had a wonderful agent who saw me in Another Evening with Harry Stoons, a little off-Broadway play that... Um, Lasted nine previews and one performance. But he saw me in that. And he's the one who sent me up for I Can Get It For You Wholesale, that first Broadway play. Now, you know, it didn't matter to me if I lost roles because I really wanted to be an actress. I mean, that's when I came in and said, you know, when I had to sing the, they gave me the sheet music for Miss Marmelstein because she was originally written to be an older woman. 
and they changed it for me. I was only 19 years old. And uh, that's the story I tell, coming back and saying, I'd like to do the song in a chair. Yeah, she's a a secretary, so you wanted to be in like a secretarial chair on wheels. Yeah, but they didn't have a secretarial chair. But my vision of it was that I would sing the song in a secretarial chair. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, it's logic. It's like I got the job. And then when we started rehearsal, they said, now we're going to stage it. What do you mean? I didn't, didn't you like my idea of singing it in a secretarial chair? Well, well, it was okay, but now we're going to you know, go to work and do a conceptual you know, staging with lots of people in the office and so forth. Yeah, well, what happened to the chairs? Yeah. You, you kept persisting like this is how it should be, and you won. <laughs> that's, that's the point. Yeah. The point is I always had these visions of the way things should be. But I also believed in trying to do to the best of my ability what the director wanted. I mean, I really tried to make it work for myself, but it just felt so awkward, so not right. Because you were just like, what, standing around while other people were on stage too? You were just standing and singing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just didn't feel right. And finally, (laughs) right before we went to Philadelphia, I think that was first, Philadelphia and then Boston. Philadelphia, um, you know, they said, he said, do it in your goddamn chair. And uh, it stopped the show. I almost felt guilty, but, you know, but I was happy <laughs> that it worked. Why don't we hear it? So this is, this is Miss Marmalstein from 1962 cast recording of I Can Get It For You, Wholesale, featuring my guest, Barbara Streisand, who has a brand new memoir. Miss Marmalstein! Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Other girls get called by their first names right away. They get cozy into May. Do you know what I mean? Nobody calls me Hey Baby Doll. Miss Marmalstein. Or Honey Dear. Miss Marmalstein. Or Sweetie Pie. Even my first name would be preferable. Though it's terrible, it might be better, it's yetter. Or perhaps my second name, that's Tessie, spelled T-E-S-S-Y-E. But no, no, it's always Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. You think at least Miss M they could try. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. That's Barbara Streisand in the 1962 original cast recording of I Can Get It For You Wholesale. That is just delightful. Um, it, well, it's, it worked. And I it, was and it, happy about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you wanted to do dramatic acting, and so, like, your big breakthrough is in a musical comedy. <laughs> but you were already doing comedic songs. I didn't yeah. get the jobs of the straight shows. Yeah, why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, when you wanted to be a dramatic actress, what kind of roles did you think you'd get? Because when you when you were uh, young and going to movies to escape being home, basically, um, you you thought to yourself, the girls on screen don't look like me, um, and and they probably didn't, you know. Um, no, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, the stars, anyway. Yeah. So what what were you expecting to get initially? Wow, I just. Somehow always saw my future. I can't explain that to you. Maybe it was my mother's negativity. I don't know if it was like, I'll prove you wrong, because she kept telling me to get a job as a secretary. Well, you got to play a secretary. <laughs> That's close. <laughs> I sure did. I sure did. Um, I think it's hard for 
sometimes parents who would have loved a career for themselves to have their kids become what they wanted to be. And your mother wanted to be a singer, yeah. Yeah, she had a beautiful voice, my Mm -hmm. mother. Mm -hmm. You know, you write that Elliot Gould, who uh, you met, I think at the auditions for I Can Get It For You Wholesale, you know, became your husband, and he developed quite a gambling habit. Which I didn't know for a long time. I didn't know it. Did you know it during Funny Girl? I didn't know it at first, that he really had a gambling habit. But it was uh, it was surprising when I did find out, and then it was part of the reason we broke up, but uh, not really. Mm-hmm. You know, we were both young, right. and it was sweet. I mean, he that first day that I auditioned for I Can Get a Few Wholesale, I gave people my telephone number said, you know, somebody please call me. It's like I just got my first phone in my my new old apartment. <laughs> and he called. I remember that was so sweet of him. He said, hi, it's Elliot Gould. I saw your audition today. It was brilliant. And he hung up. And we still keep in contact. He calls me. He says, you know, we'll, we'll always be family. And it's true. We share a son. So that's great, you know. He gave me my son. When you were in Funny Girl, were you able to take liberties with the songs? And did that change over time? Were you able to take more liberties as time went on? In how I sang the songs every night? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, I had the most wonderful conductor. And he said, you know, he would say things like, tonight you really wanted to speed it up, right? He was right with me, like the great conductors who know that I'm never going to sing it the same twice. Because you want to be in the moment. That's right. I want to play with it, Um, play with the music, you know, Uh, rephrase it depending on how I felt that night. That's what I think keeps a performance honest. Mm -hmm. You can't just copy what you did from the night before, you know. It, It never works, I don't think. I like actors who respect their reality at the moment. Does this get back to you being shy? And um, like there's two sides to you. There's the side that's going to like keep pushing for what you want no matter what, no matter how famous the director is or, you know, whoever, you're going to push for what you think is right. And at the same time, the other side of you feels very like shy, very vulnerable, kind of fragile. Right. Um, right. So those are like two totally opposite things. Um, are, do you feel like at war with yourself sometimes? Like wanting to push and also feeling very vulnerable at the same time? Well, usually they don't happen at the same time. <laughs> usually it's like, no, I have a vision of this and this is what it has to be. Mm-hmm. Like doing, you know, directing my first film, Yentl. I mean, this is what I see in my brain. This is... And now, let's improve on that. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily that that I do. I have to be open to change. I love being open. So I want to play a song from the original cast recording of Funny Girl. And I think think we played People the last time you were on the show. And uh, so I was thinking of Who Are You Now? It's really beautiful. It's it's not a song as well known. Very pretty song, yeah. Yeah, Very but it's pretty. a beautiful song. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about the song and what this song means to you? It was just a wonderful melody and a wonderful lyric. I mean, who are you now? How people change in marriages, or do they or don't they, or how they grow, hopefully together, or how they don't. Um, I love that song. Good. Let's hear it. Oh, yeah. 
Barbara Streisand from the original cast recording of Funny Girl. Let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Barbara Streisand, and she has a new memoir, which is called My Name is Barbara. We'll be right back. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado from Fresh Air. You already know that our show has been around for more than 40 years. And even for us, we love to listen back to our interviews with some of the biggest voices in pop culture. Voices like this one from our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. I think I had my best conversations with the dog who was a good friend of mine and didn't challenge me in any way. And I I certainly let let the family know what what my needs were. Um, um, But when strangers came to the house, uh, the mute happened. That's James Earl Jones in conversation with our host, Terry Gross, more than 30 years ago, speaking about his childhood stutter. You can hear what that meant to Jones for yourself and hear all of our episodes sponsor-free by becoming a Fresher Plus supporter at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Barbara Streisand. She has a new memoir called My Name is Barbara. So I want to change the subject a little bit. When did you realize that you'd become a gay icon? I think quite early on. Why do you think you became a gay icon? I have no idea. Because I could be imitated? Uh... Because I had a, a a certain rebel quality, a certain thing that was different mm-hmm. that they felt when I sang that it was about heartbreak, and you know, um, a lot of the songs anyway were. So you met your first husband, Elliot Gould, at auditions for "I Can Get It For You Wholesale." So then, in your second show, and Funny Girl. You starred opposite Sidney Chaplin, who was Charlie Chaplin's son. He's no longer alive. And you started to think you were falling in love with him because he was falling in love with you. Yeah, that's flattering. It was flattering. And, you know, that's an occupational hazard um, sometimes. Explain. With actors and actresses. Well, you're playing a part. And then to get to feel something about the person that you're playing with, you sometimes get a crush. Mm-hmm. And he was very attentive to me until it got boring. <laughs> you know, always wanted to have lunch with me, have dinner with me. No, I, when we were out of town only. You called it off. And then That's right. he kind of got back at you on stage in front mm-hmm. of audiences. Tell us, tell us what he did. Well, he would mumble under his breath, while he was not even looking into my eyes, he was looking at my forehead, and it completely threw me, like saying curse words and like cursing you. Oh yeah, and I I went into his dressing room after the show once or twice to beg him to stop doing that. You know, it's not feasible now. 
I want to be with my husband, you know, hopefully you want to be with your wife. That's it. We can't, you know, play games anymore. The show is um, set. But he wouldn't stop. And it literally, I had, I got sick to my stomach. I, I was thinking, oh my God, I can't remember my next line. You know, what do I do if I want to throw up and uh, run off stage? I'm on the stage. The first act is an hour and a half. You were really afraid you were going to throw up on stage. I was, yeah, 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 yeah. I was timing how fast I could get to the bathroom, you know, and I, no, it was horrible. I almost was going to quit, but I'm not a quitter. They finally, they begged him. I remember seeing him on the stage, and he says, I don't need your money. I got, uh, my father left me a fortune, and, you know, they let him go because he wouldn't stop. You write that this is what started your stage fright, that you hadn't had it before. It's true. You never did Broadway again. I never did Broadway um, again, right. Was that because of Sidney Chaplin? Do you think if it wasn't for that, that you would have wanted to be in more Broadway shows? Not really. I just fell in love with film. I fell in love with doing a scene once or five times or whatever it was in a day or two, and it's over. You don't have to do the same show, say the same words night after night. It became boring. Really, I was ready to move on to and love film. That was amazing. Why would I ever want to go back to Broadway? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm just thinking, like, you have been so brave in pushing for what you think is right in terms of a scene, a performance, the way a song should be interpreted, the lighting, your hair, which side of your face you want to be photographed. But then you, you started developing these phobias about performing, uh, you know, performing live. Um, so I, I guess I find it a little hard to square the phobias with the side of you that is so determined and certain. But did the phobias really get to you? Like, did it change your image of yourself to be afraid of one of the things that you do best, which is just like performing live, being on stage. Sometimes I felt like a clown, like walk back and forth because you have to hit this side of the audience or that side. You know, you have to walk. And then I have back problems. And then my feet started to hurt. You know what I mean? I was just like, this is too strenuous. And then I like the designing the show part. I like imagining it. I loved going back to do my first concert in 1993, New Year's Eve, into 1994. That was exciting for me to, you know, use my experience, use my therapists, you know, and put it into... Um, yeah, you had a monologue, but instead of doing it a monologue, you pretended like you were talking to, you know, three Different three therapists. therapists. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I had had a woman, I had had an older man, I had had a medium-sized man, but in other words, developing it, designing it is the most exciting part to me, Yeah, not doing it. But I did love, that scene in the movies, I loved making the movies I directed because it's so interesting, yeah. You created some of your insecurities to your mother who was always criticizing you. Um, I, and I want you to name some of her more memorable and cutting criticisms. I'll start with my favorite of the ones that you mentioned in the book that she used to send you bad reviews. And when you say, why are you sending this to me? She'd say, you need to know about this. Don't get a swelled head. <laughs> That's pretty destructive, considering how sensitive you are about some things. Um, so what are some of your most memorable criticisms from out of you? God. Well, when I first uh, allowed her to... <laughs> I, she came the second night when I was at the Bonsoir. My mother, the first thing she said, I remember, was your voice needs eggs. You have to use a guggle muggle because your voice needs to be stronger. What's a guggle a muggle? Guggle muggle? A guggle muggle was you, she made hot kind of chocolate and put a raw egg in it, which I could never swallow. Ugh. 
My mother came twice, once to see me as a singer and once to see me as an actress. When I came off the stage as an actress in my acting class, we put on a little show, her comment was, your arms are too skinny. (laughs) So your mother was very critical of you. Your father died when you were 15 months old, so you never really got to know him. Um, Your stepfather you describe as not physically abusive, but emotionally abusive. What did he... He never saw me. He never talked to me. Mm -hmm. Literally, I can say to you, I don't remember a sentence or even a word hello. It was like I wasn't seen. It's like I vanished in front of him. He would not talk to me. So I think my early upbringing did affect my wanting to be famous in some way or an actor, you know, because I wasn't seen. Mm -hmm. What a way to be seen. You become an actress, I guess, you know. You become a movie star. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about music. So, um, you, you you are very brave. You you a couple of times uh, asked Stephen Sondheim to add a lyric or change a lyric yes. for you. And so I want to ask you about "Send in the Clowns." Uh, in 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 the show that that's from, a little night music. You know, it's about a couple who um, he was in love with her, and then by the time she's in love with him, he's kind of married, so he's no longer available. And, you know, years pass. Um, So anyways, in the song, you thought that since it wasn't done in the context of the show, that people wouldn't get what the lyrics were really about. Exactly. So you asked Sondheim to add... um, Another, a second bridge. A second bridge to kind of explain what was happening. How did you have the nerve to ask Sondheim (laughs) to write something for you? You know what? Because I knew him. He had a strange mother like I did, who didn't believe in him. Uh, right, right. And therefore, I could talk truth to him. I know who he is. And I know that he's always, like me in a sense, looking for something even better than what you did before. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain people who would never change a lyric. So what would you think of the bridge that he wrote for you? Loved it. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Loved it. Loved it. I didn't even know because I don't remember seeing that show. Or if I did, maybe I left that intermission. But I don't remember. I didn't remember the story. And then when he told me, when I called him, he says, you know, you're saying something that really happened on stage. There was time and you're asking me to write a, a, something else that's really filling that time for a record. And he said, so I was really glad to do it. So we're going to be hearing a little more than just the part that Sondheim wrote for you. So I want to point out to our listeners which is that part in case they're not that familiar with the lyrics. So it's the part, the part that he wrote for you is the part that starts, what a surprise, who could foresee, I'd come to feel about you what you felt about me. So it's... It's those two lines plus two other lines. Okay, so here we go. This is Barbara Streisand. Don't you love farce? My fault, I fear. I thought that you'd want what I want. Sorry, my But where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Quick send in the clowns. What a surprise. Who could foresee? I come to feel about you what you felt about me. surprised 
That's Barbara Streisand with uh, an extra bridge written for her at her request by Stephen Sondheim. Well, let's take a break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Barbara Streisand, and she has a new memoir, which is called My Name is Barbara. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. So another song I want to ask you about, and this is one of the songs you're most famous for, is The Way We Were, which is the title song from the movie of the same name, which starred you and Robert Redford. And you say originally the, the song was composed with the melody going down in, in notes instead of going up in notes. So I'm wondering why it struck you as not being right. Well, again, you see, these are mystical things. They're magical things. They're, they're, they're one me. I can't describe it to you. It's why, uh, why I could write Evergreen, because I hear it in my head. I hear it, and then I have to figure out how you do it. I had to learn to play the guitar. To, to do it. But the way we were, it originally went da 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 da. The original went da 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 da. See? Mm-hmm. I just heard it da 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 da. I went up because that's what I heard in my head. That's what my voice did. It's unconscious or conscious. I don't know how you describe it. It's, it's people who have that ability to do it in the first place, like, you know, Michelle Legrand or Marvin Hamlish. I mean, they write music. And then the song became elevated in my, in my mind, meaning elevated um, sonically. I'm forgetting who composed the melody. Oh, Marvin Hamlish. Marvin Hamlish. Well, so what did Marvin Hamlish think when you said, by the way, <laughs> you know, I think the melody should be with the notes heading upward instead of down. Yeah. He, he said, good idea. I mean, when, when you work without ego, when it doesn't matter who says what, you just, when you know it's right, that's great collaboration. Now, you know how you said when you're working without ego, you take suggestions? Uh, And I think because you have so many suggestions and you have such a strong vision in your mind of how things should be, that a lot of people could be, or could be, that a lot of people perceive you as having a large domineering ego. Well, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ego because on the other hand, I'm not sure what I do. I'm not sure if this book is any good. I'm not sure if somebody tells me it's fabulous, I'll, you know, great. If they tell me, well, it could have been much better, I could buy that too. Oh, gosh. You know what that's reminding me of? What? <laughs> After your first album came out, uh, Arthur, Arthur Lawrence, who that's right. had um, uh, directed <laughs> you in, and uh, I, I can get it for you wholesale, he wrote you this like horrible letters saying, you know, you know, you're a great singer, but this is too much. It's like putting the frosting on the icing on top of a cake. It's just, it's, it's too much. And he said, and he said, but the, but the ingredients are good. You know, the song is good. Your voice is great, but just like take off all of that, all that frosting and, you know, you're, you're, you're being too dramatic. And then you wrote him back (laughs) saying, oh, you're so right. (laughs) You know, I, no, I, I, I wasn't right. Prepared. I did the album I, in three days, 
four songs, you know, each session, 12 songs. I, I didn't know if it was that good. I mean, I, I didn't. You topped him in criticisms. You just started tearing the record apart in your letter back to him. Yeah, that's right. So that just one more time, I want to say that's another example of the combination of your having a vision and really wanting to do it a certain way and then being really insecure when... When it's done. Was that really good? I could... I don't know. Yeah. My editor keeps saying to me, the book is really good. I say, really? Is it really? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, I have two sides of me. And one helps the other. No, I don't have a swelled head. My mother didn't have to worry. I never got that swelled head. I, I believed her. Right, when she, you know, when she put you down. When she put me down, I, yeah. that's probably, I'm like uh, two different sides of my personality, yeah. God, I have to go back to therapy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not that interested in myself again, so I love being interested in grandchildren, my grandchildren. Thank you for enduring the ordeal of being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I you, it. Terry, for, you know, be, this is 10 years we're talking about. That you wrote More the book. More than 10 yeah, years yeah, yeah. that I talked to you. Oh, since you've been on the show. Yes. Well, like I said, it was great Can to you have imagine? you imagine? Okay. Thank you, Terry. Barbara Streisand's new memoir is called My Name is Barbara. take a short break, John Powers will review the new Australian comedy series, Colin from Accounts, which premieres in the U.S. tomorrow. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from Pushkin. In the original audiobook, The Art of Small Talk, actresses and comedians Casey Wilson and Jessica St. Clair share six simple rules for how to engage in small talk. Available on Audible, Spotify, or wherever you get your audiobooks. A new Australian comedy series called Colin from Accounts is about a 40-something man and a late 20s woman who were brought together by a dog. The series begins streaming on Paramount Plus tomorrow, and our critic at large, John Power, says that its warmth, good humor, and essential benevolence might make it the perfect antidote to what's going on in the world. For most of the 20th century, audiences loved romantic comedies— from Cary Grant wooing Catherine Hepburn to Ted Danson and Shelley Long bickering on cheers until they finally, inevitably fell in love. Sad to say this upbeat genre, now direly termed the rom-com, has fallen badly out of fashion, with many younger viewers finding it as passé as black-and-white movies. If you love romantic comedies as I do, you know it's hard to find a good new one. That's why I happily recommend Colin from Accounts, a new Australian show on the Paramount Plus streaming service. Created by its stars, the real-life husband-wife team of Harriet Dyer and Patrick Bramall, this eight-part series touches all the bases of the traditional romantic comedy. Yet it never feels musty. Brimming with life and honesty, it's also exceedingly funny. 
Set in Sydney, column from accounts centers on two likably lonely souls. A mid-40s microbrewer, Gordon, that's Bramall, and Ashley, played by Dyer, a hard-drinking 29-year-old medical student who's just broken off with her boyfriend. They share a modern spin on the classic meet-cute. Gordon is driving to work when he stops to let Ashley cross the road. A bit hungover, she thanks him by flashing one of her breasts. The distracted Gordon pulls forward and hits a dog that's been running free. The two take the injured border terrier, which has no ID tag, to the nearest vet. They're horrified to learn that treating the dog will cost them thousands of dollars. As you will surely guess, this accident launches them into a relationship. Initially bound by the dog, which they name Colin from accounts, they gradually discover a more intimate connection. But not before the usual delays. Here we spend time with their friends, from Ashley's even harder partying pal Megan to Gordon's cluelessly ribald bartender Brett. And we watch the two stumble through adventures that take them from hospital deathbeds and inadvertent sexting to drunken revels and wrenching family encounters. Although they don't recognize it at first, we see how well they click. At times, they feel it too. Here the homeless Ashley has crashed at Gordon's for the night. Over breakfast, they talk about Colin and then start joking around. This is nice. This is nice. Yeah. Carl, is this nice? High five. Oh, good boy. Do you think he's smarter than most dogs? No. What? No, I think everyone just thinks their dog's really smart. He is very smart. I can see you becoming like a weird dog person. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. I don't know if it's a good colour on you. I think it's a great colour on me. Get on board. I'm good. Mm. Look at us, huh? Yeah. Like an old married couple. (laughs) Nice since the kids left. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm. Now, if you're like me, you may think of Australian comedy as being a tad, well, broad. And in truth, Colin from Accounts is not without its share of flatulence and poop jokes. Pretty funny ones, actually. Yet the show never embraces the gleeful vulgarity of the early Judd Apatow comedies. In fact, the show is striking for its variation of tone. The body stuff is folded into a storyline that grows deeper and subtler as it goes along. Even as they banter, Gordon and Ashley come to know each other's fears and vulnerabilities. In a scene reminiscent of the great Christmas episode of The Bear, Gordon attends Ashley's birthday party at her mother's and discovers the pain of her childhood. Bramall and Dyer are very appealing actors. Bearded and bright-eyed, he gives Gordon a menschy tenderness that shines through his ironic humor. We want him to find happiness. And Dyer may be even better as Ashley. She has a comic verve that recalls Julie Haggerty and Leslie Mann. Yet her tired eyes suggest something more. A woman whose sensitivity and intelligence can be self-defeating. And then there's Colin from Accounts. The dog, I mean, complete with the wheels that do the work of his back legs. I'm pleased to report that the show doesn't use him cutely or milk him for easy laughs. You won't go, ah. The show is smarter than that. Justifying his title role, Colin from Accounts is more than just a dog. He's another wounded, big-hearted creature looking for someone to love. John Powers reviewed the new series Colin from Accounts, which begins streaming tomorrow on Paramount+. Plus. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be Isabel Kirshner, a New York Times reporter based in Jerusalem who's been reporting on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian divide since 1990 and is now reporting on the war between Israel and Hamas. Her new book, The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul, is about ideological, religious, ethnic, and generational tensions within Israel. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on our show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, 
Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberto Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.